thousands of Iraqi troops advancing on Mosul. And take a look tonight. Iraqi forces approaching the city, a line of tanks there, and watch the left side of your screen. ISIS responding with suicide bombers inside cars, driving right toward those tanks. At least a dozen attacks like that one there already. Just after dawn, Iraqi tanks rolled into battle. <laughs> Artillery and airstrikes pounded ISIS positions. The offensive officially underway to retake Mosul from ISIS. That was one of the rockets heading out down towards into the plains uh, around the city of Mosul. The sun has come up. But as the day wore on, the terrorist group showed it was not going down without a fight. This suicide truck bomber careened into a line of Iraqi tanks, then exploded. Giant flames shooting towards the sky. Another drove towards a Kurdish convoy, the troops yelling as they spot the attacker. Then, the sound of the explosion. ISIS claimed 12 suicide bombings in the battle today. Backing the anti-ISIS forces, American troops advising and calling in airstrikes like those we saw throughout the day on a Kurdish base. That progress seen from a drone, abandoned villages that the advancing forces now warn may be booby-trapped. The fighters tell us that the biggest obstacle to their advance is the deadly IEDs all along the road. So even with considerably greater firepower, moving forward can be complicated and slow going. Before we begin, I would like to invite the listeners of the show to become a supporter, and you can support uh, with a small monthly donation, and this will help sustain future episodes. If that's something that you're interested in doing, you can go to www.anchor.fm slash Global Recon, and there's a support icon on there, and you can set that up that way. If supporting is not something you want to do, uh, financially, just share the episodes with your friends and family. Uh, leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a special guest on with me for this podcast, Daniel Gabriel. I worked for the government for a number of years, counterterrorism roles. Uh, Daniel, how's it going, brother? It's going great, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for coming on, man. Um, now, I, you produced the film Mosul. I've been aware of the film. Uh, I'm get, If I remember correctly, I think it was through social media that I had first seen um, anything about it. You know, I have a bunch of friends in Iraq, and I follow some Iraqis on social media, and people were probably posting about it and stuff like that. But I had no idea that you, you were involved in it, and I wasn't aware of your background until very recently. Um so you worked at the CIA for 14 years as a counterterrorism officer. Um, can we sort of go to the beginning and talk about what motivated you to join the CIA and maybe what you were doing right before that? Yeah, so uh, so I left in, in 2012, so, so nine years actually. Uh, felt like 14 uh, because of everything that basically happened uh, between 9-11 and ultimately the killing of bin Laden. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, 
the, look, the, the CIA is a place where, you know, what, what you're there, you really can't tell stories. I mean, you see a lot of things that you'd like to tell stories about, but of course you can't. Uh, and even to some extent, once you leave, uh, you're, you're limited in what you can say about the, the, the events and the people and the places uh, <clears throat> that you, you know, uh, that became part of your life. But for me, you know, the story of Mosul uh, that you just referred to uh, goes back to when I was in, in Iraq, uh, in Baghdad, between 2004 and 2005. Uh, I spent a really short period of time in Mosul, had actually TDY'd up there, and, and arrived the day that the DFAC was blown up there in late December of 2000. Four, um, Mosul then was a very, very different place than, than what you see in the film or, or even what it is today uh, in the sense that, number one, it wasn't actually the most dangerous place in Iraq. People think of the activity and most of the action then was really happening in the Sunni Triangle. Ramadi and Fallujah, of course, were the center of attention, but it was it was a dangerous place and it was becoming a more and more dangerous uh, place when uh, General Petraeus went up there. Uh, and really became the heart, if you will, of the insurgency and, and also the heart of our efforts to roll back the insurgency with the, the Sunni Awakening uh, program and, and working with those guys, to, working with the Sunnis, um, to take responsibility for for their their networks and, and their uh, and their society uh, and their people uh, to kind of pull them back from the, the brink of oblivion, which is which is where they were heading. Uh, we did that, of course, Iraq, you know, uh, did not secure this status of forces agreement with President Obama and ended up with the United States military leaving about halfway through Obama's term. Uh, and then, of course, after a period of a couple of years, what we saw was uh, was ISIS taking hold, uh, starting off in, in the Sunni Triangle and once again in Mosul. So my, my story goes back to there. Uh, it's been a, it's been a while since I've been in Iraq. Um, but, you know, many of the many of the people that I met there and, and the places and, and the, the experiences I think I've, I've tried to pepper them throughout the film uh, as we tell the story of the people of Mosul, which is really the story of the people of Iraq fighting back against ISIS, coming together and unifying the fight against ISIS. Yeah, it's a fantastic documentary, and I recommend people to watch it. What's the best place people can watch it? I personally watched it on Amazon. Are there other platforms where people can uh, get a look at it? Yeah, it's on it's on YouTube, it's on Google Play, it's also on iTunes. Um, it just caution you there's there's a glitch on Amazon, so you have to turn the subtitles on manually. Uh, some people haven't figured that out, so they're they're watching it and they can't figure out that it's in Arabic. Yes. that's what they speak in Iraq. But yeah, it's it's uh, subtitled on Amazon, and you can find it there as well as iTunes, Google Play. Uh, more information about the film, of course, Mosul dot film, Mosul dot film. Uh, but it's pretty much online everywhere. So when was that film? That was filmed in 2017? 2016. 2016. So, uh, yeah, the, the operation to, to take back Mosul began in earnest in October of 2016. We embedded our camera crews with the Iraqi security forces right from the beginning. Uh, and we stayed, the, stayed with them right till the end in July 2017, which is when victory was declared uh, by the Iraqi government. Um, so, you know, I think it, one of the differences between Mosul and a couple other films out there that, that cover ISIS or, or that part of um, Iraq's history. And one of the differences is that we were there for the entire part, you know, the entire, the entire battle, really. Uh, it wasn't just a, you know, a, a vice camera crew flying in for a week to, to talk about the story. And we had the beginning and the middle and the end. Um, and we covered all the different groups involved in the conflicts so of the Sunni, the Shia, the Kurds, the Yazidis, the Christians really tried to get a, a, a well-rounded approach and understanding of who these different forces were and who these characters that we were able to bring to life on screen 
were and, and what makes them tick and what the risks uh, what the risks were for them to participate or not to participate in, in this massive battle. You guys did a great job of sort of showing the dynamic of the different groups in Iraq, because typically I think when Americans think about a place like Iraq, they just assume everybody is uh, Muslim under, you know, the same type of group. Uh, but that's not the case. There are Sunni Muslims, there are Shia Muslims, you have Yazidis, you have Christians. Um, you know, there was a point in time where Iraq was a extremely diverse place and, um, it still is with, with all the different groups there. And I think you guys did a great job um, sort of just showing that. Um, so one of the major points the film highlights, uh, like I just alluded to, is the sectarian differences. The Middle East in general, in particular in Iraq, it's a very fluid situation. Um, you know, as the film highlighted, many Sunni Iraqis uh, initially believed that ISIS, or as was referred to by the Iraqis in the film, Dash would liberate the Sunnis from the control of the Iranian-backed Shia power in Baghdad. Um, but they quickly found out that that wasn't the case. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, people wonder, uh, you know, how could uh, how could a group like Daesh, uh, which is the kind of the Iraqi or, or even Arabic pejorative for, for ISIS, um, how, how were they able to take over the second largest city in Iraq? Uh, and you kind of hear the, some of the reports of, you know, the early days of the fighting in the Iraqi army, 50 or 60,000 of them, and, and they basically just retreated. They surrendered to, to less than 2,000 Dash fighters. Well, of course, it, it wasn't two units in, in combat. It, it was the 50 or 60,000 uh, members of the Iraqi security forces. They just decided not to fight. Uh, they, they didn't necessarily lose uh, on the battlefield. They chose not to not to enter the battlefield. Uh, but again, the, the reason that ISIS was able to uh, to to basically take such a strong hold in, in Mosul and, and other parts of of northern and western Iraq and not not to mention Syria was was because of the sectarian difference that, that as you mentioned between Sunni and Shia these different groups that make up Iraqi society uh, and the lack of the ability of the government in Baghdad to make their their minority uh, population which which were the Sunnis uh, that had become disenfranchised since the the removal of Saddam Hussein. Uh, to make them feel like, like they had a voice in society. And of course, that's putting it lightly in kind of Western political science terms. But but basically, they, they felt um, they felt marginalized and, and uh, excluded from their own government and to the point where ISIS was able to offer them something different. And if you can imagine the barbarity that ISIS offered, if, if people uh, in, in Mosul would think that that would be preferable to what they had, you can imagine how, how stark the difference was. Absolutely. And so how long was it from the point that ISIS had gotten there and had promised these things? And then, you know, the Sunni population was looking at them like, OK, maybe these guys won't be so bad. How long did it take for reality to set in? Do you know? Well, that buyer's remorse. Uh, that's a great question. You know, there's there's a lot of footage, especially on social media, from social media when when ISIS rolled into town, if you will. Uh, the, the jeeps and, and technicals were, you know, flying the black flag of ISIS, you know, and, and at what point I think the people in Mosul realized that they had gotten, uh, they had made a, a deal with the bargain, if you will. Uh, it probably wasn't that long. It was probably just a couple months before they realized that uh, that the society that ISIS was offering them was a, was a total 
um, was a total cloak on, on the entire fabric of life uh, that they would come to know in, in terms of the, 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 the ideology, the extremist ideology uh, would, would lead to things that they could only imagine. Uh, of course, the persecution and execution of Christians, of gays, uh, the, you know, the, uh, you know, the marginalization of females in society. The kids weren't allowed to go to school. So we quickly became, you know, like something out of that, um, uh, that uh, show. It's slipping my mind, but the, the girls that wear the red dresses and it's kind of like a flashback to this dystopian society um, that quickly became very real to the people that live there. Yeah, and I think they were, um, you know, I've read several books on ISIS and, and their ideology and thinking. And and there's a few parts to that. So one is, I guess, you people may assume that when you see a group that is that barbaric and, you know, they behave in, in such a fashion that you would think, you know, they're just like a bunch of cavemen type of dudes. And I'm sure there were a lot, there was a lot of that there, but their leadership were um, highly educated individuals and capable individuals. And I think people don't really uh, lend too much credit to that. Um, and and basically a, a large chunk of their ideology was just, you know, as they say, they were calling themselves the caliphate and uh, they declared a caliphate. And they basically were trying to bring back, you know, the rule of the way things were done you know, thousands of years ago or, you know, a thousand years ago, something like that. Um, and well, they, they did a good job of taking the place back a thousand years. <laughs> right. Absolutely. That's for sure. And, and the, the TV series I was thinking of is, is Handmaid's Tale, of course. And, and that's like a modern version, if you will, uh, of ISIS. But, you know, it's it goes back to the caliphate, what you were saying. So, yeah, you know, uh, Abu al-Baghdadi, of course, went to Mosul. Uh, and and stormed the uh, the famous mosque there, and basically declared himself the caliph, uh, and, and declared that Mosul would be the head of the caliphate, which is why Mosul is so significant. It's another reason why we chose to uh, to tell the story around Mosul. Of course, there were any number of other cities that we could have chose to to do a film on or, or to cover a, a battle against ISIS. Number one, ISIS would you know number one, uh, Mosul was the second largest city in Iraq, but I think the difference between Focusing it on something uh, that we might have we might have been able to capture in Fallujah Ramadi was that Mosul is such a, a diverse city, uh, and it's like what you said again. It's a it's a patchwork of different cultures uh, that you don't really have to that extent in Fallujah and Ramadi as you do in Mosul, where you have Sunni and Shia and Kurds and Yazidis and Christians. Um, so the ability to tell the story and look at all these groups came together really becomes a centerpiece of the film, and then the message is you know. There's no, there's no surprise what the outcome of the film is. You know, the, the story of the defeat of ISIS. It's not the military defeat uh, that that really is is what we're kind of waiting to see when once the end of the film arrives. It's it's what's going to happen after these people successfully accomplish their military objectives. Are they able to put their society back together? Uh, and are these people able to live in relative peace uh, and prosperity to move forward towards a unified society? And I, you know, the film was completed in July 2017 in terms of the, the, the foot the filming the footage and cinematography you know but here we are two and a half years later and it's it's still relevant and, and the reason is because the film is not really about ISIS it's more about what is the future of Iraq and the region 
And how do we look at these different sectarian groups uh, fit together, work together or not? And that's, I think that there's a direct line to what we see in the news this week, the past couple of weeks, with the, the kind of the, the growing conflict between Iraq, Iran, and the U.S. Right, it's all relevant. Um, one thing I thought you guys did a good job of was highlighting different, um, I, I guess in terms of a film, you, know, you can say characters, but these are real-life people in leadership roles who are fighting against ISIS. And um, uh, one person who stood out to me was uh, Um Hanadi, the the leader of the PMF, the Popular Mobilization Forces. Right. Um, and I thought it was I thought she was an absolutely fascinating person, and um, represents to me what it meant to sacrifice in the war against ISIS. And then um, she also represents the potential of a united Iraq as a woman and a Sunni commanding men in a Shia militia facing ISIS in combat. Well, you hit it on the head. And, and of course, one of the reasons uh, that makes her so fascinating and interesting for this particular story uh, is her gender. It's, it's that pronoun, her, she. And it's, it's because it's, uh, she's, it's so unexpected to find somebody, uh, a female, in the role that she's in uh, and does such a good job of, being a leader of these of this particular militia group, uh, now keep in mind that it's it's out of revenge. Uh, so the reason that she's joined up and, and taking this role is because her husband, her uh, her ex husband, has been killed by ISIS, and, and she's out she's out essentially for revenge. And she makes no qualms about that. That you know when she when she talks, we've got great footage of her uh, not only in the battlefield but kind of in her home environment, talking about what motivates her to take this incredible risk to lead. You know, several hundred Iraqi soldiers, some of whom are Sunni, some of whom are Shia, uh, on the battlefield, and and she just—it's uh, just a, uh, at the end of the day, it's a—it's a mother's revenge, a wife's revenge. Yeah, so she lost. She had lost several family members. Um, I think mostly male members of her family to ISIS. That's right. And was her husband the leader of that group before he was killed? So her husband was essentially a police chief uh, in the in the village that she was in, uh, and ultimately was was killed, you know, fairly early on uh, under the ISIS reign. Uh, and she, of course, goes in to tell the story about how she, you know, what the turning point for her was when she had to make the decision whether to retrieve his body, essentially behind enemy lines. And she, of course, does so and impresses the men around her with that bravery and and the rest is history. Yeah, it was, it was pretty fascinating. Um, so one thing that, that often happens uh, in war, in war zones, is the advancement and development um, of tactics and, and basically new ways to kill people. Um, armed drones were not invented by the Iraqi army or by Daesh, but certainly adding explosives to consumer drones is a very cheap and effective way to add a different capability to the battlefield. That's something that was um, highlighted. Um, I can't remember if it was just the Iraqi army or was it uh, the Iraqi special operations group that was using it in battle against ISIS? Both. Uh, I think in the, in, not to mention ISIS as well, not to right. mention our, our film crew. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you've got almost a, uh, a battle in the skies between, you know, between fr friend and foe and, and journalist or reporter as well, all essentially using the same off-the-shelf commercial technology. And it's it's as simple as a Phantom 4 DJI Chinese drone you can buy for 
1200 bucks on Amazon. Uh, and these things have been retrofitted, of course, by ISIS to, to have a, essentially a release mechanism that they can drop a hand grenade. Uh, and it's, you know, they, and they film it, of course, and the camera's being built into the drone. They make sure that they film it for their propaganda purposes. And in response, the Iraqi army, the Iraqi security forces, uh, essentially develops their own version of that and they film it as well. And they use it for their own information operations purposes. And then of course we, we've got our own drone that we had on scene that we were able to capture some great footage, uh, particularly some of the wider shots of the refugee camps and some of the river crossings that were involved, uh, repatriating some of these refugees. But yeah, it's, you know, the, the idea of using an off the shelf uh, product as a, as a weapon of war, um, that obviously has very limited targeting ability is, uh, is not something new. As you mentioned, every, every conflict brings with it, uh, a new technology and, I think this is this is the first time, certainly, that we see drones used like this, and we can only imagine, you know, if they were, um, you know, if that type of technology, that tactic was was brought back to the homeland and, and weaponized in that form. But I, I think that's the probably the, the nightmare of every homeland security officer. Yeah, I think it was a couple of years ago, uh, somewhere in the states. I don't remember where, and I don't remember what type of drone it was. Uh, I think it was a DJI product. But someone had altered it and fitted a, a pistol to it, and I, and there was a, the video was kind of viral online of this guy was shooting a pistol from his drone oh, uh, wow. somewhere in the woods, you know. Um, but yeah, it's it's just you know innovation and, and thinking outside the box is um, you know these things keep people alive on the battlefield. So. Uh, another thing I wanted to talk about was the Iraqi Special Operations Forces. Um, you know, I have a good friend with them who, who, who's been with them for a number of years. Uh, he's still active there. Um, you know, they're, they're good people and they've sacrificed so much in the fight against ISIS when the Iraqi army had basically retreated uh, and ISIS had pushed uh, as far into Iraq as they could. From my understanding, the Iraqi Special Operations Forces really stopped them from taking Baghdad almost single-handedly. Yeah, that's right. There's, there's so many levels to, to peel back on that. So, um, number one, yeah, to, to differentiate, you know, what we think of as the Iraqi Army that we spent since 2004 trying to train, uh, and they never could quite get it right to compare and contrast them to the the special forces groups, the the Golden Brigade. Um, CTS uh, compared to those guys is a completely different ballgame. Now, these are the heroes of the film. This film is not about American troops in combat. In fact, there's no English spoken in the film, uh, and there are no American faces in the film. And that was that was by design. Uh, you know, the the mission of the Iraqi security forces was uh, supported by U.S. special forces, of course, and U.S. air power training equipment uh, is is a big part that's off screen in the film, but. You know, we made a conscious decision not to include that in the film because it, it, it's not the story we wanted to tell. What we wanted to do is mirror Operation Inherent Resolve itself, which was designed to put an Iraqi face uh, on the on the battle against ISIS, Islamic extremism, uh, the kind of the by, for, through approach uh, to special operations, special forces, uh, guerrilla warfare, where you're leveraging your partners to do the fighting. And I think that's from a military standpoint, I think OIR was a, a, a huge strategic uh, victory that probably not enough people know or talk about. Um, and then, you know, to kind of tell the story in the way that we did, it was really designed to put that front center. 
Yeah, I watched it with my wife, and you know, she's not very read up on any of this type of stuff. Um, but just seeing some of the sheer destruction of the environment, um, you know, bombed out buildings, and you know, buildings where only you know one story is sort of standing, the rest of the you know the four walls are blown off, like just just sheer destruction. Um, and then you guys were embedded while they were fighting, basically house to house, street to street. And during one of these scenes, um, one of the, one of the guys stepped on an IED and was killed. And, um, it's very emotional and it's very raw. And, um, you know, you can see it in in the guy's faces, uh, you know, how important it was to them, you know, losing one of their, their brothers in, in war. Right. Well, I mean, again, it's it's a credit to uh, to the, the bravery of, of these groups that were doing the fighting uh, because they, they paid a terrible cost. And you get to go back to, to Mosul and, and what it looks like now uh, in the aftermath. It, it's it's Stalingrad after World War Two. I mean, yeah. this is a city that's completely leveled uh, for miles and miles around it. Some parts of the city worse than others, of course. Uh, and this is a combination of U.S. air power and Iraqi security forces, artillery and and ISIS just blown things up uh as as they retreated and and uh, ultimately were defeated but it's um it's a city that's going to take a long time you know probably more than a decade and a trillion dollars to rebuild and of course it's uh you know the future of Mosul and, and whether whether the city is rebuilt and how and when that happens is of course will tell us you know whether we'll be back there whether there'll be an ISIS 3.0 um if you kind of look at the, the different groups that have have caused problems for Iraq. Going back to you know, since our involvement, starting with Al Qaeda in Iraq, and then into ISIS, and what is that version 3.0 that that follows? So, is today is Mosul still uh, pretty messed up? Like, has there have they begun any type of reconstruction? Well, you know, look like like always is the case with with humanity. Um, you know, human beings find a way to survive and, and to come back and 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 to and to um, you know, the, the rebirth of everything is, is so, so often part of these stories. And, and most of those coming back to life slowly but surely. Um, you know, there's, uh, there's a guy that's uh, done a lot of work. He, he was actually uh, in Mosul during most of the reign of ISIS. Is, is, uh, he goes by the Twitter handle Mosul I E Y E, but um, really offers a firsthand look into kind of the rebuilding of the city and the people and the civilization that held that, um, that city and that part of the world together. So that that in and of itself is a fascinating story. So I'd done a podcast in 2016 with a Vice News reporter. He embedded with the Golden Division um, after that after that podcast. And and one of the things that he thought was that after ISIS is defeated militarily, there may be some sectarian violence that takes place afterwards between the Shia and the Sunni. Um, since ISIS has been defeated, are you aware of anything like that taking place? Yeah, to some extent. So, of course, that's, you know, that's one of the lines that we hear throughout the film is that sectarianism is is over. And, and right. what the characters on the screen present is this unified front against ISIS. And in, indeed, they are certainly unified and, and lethal and effective uh, in the military objectives and accomplishing the military objectives of taking the city back and destroying ISIS. But the, the question is, and I can't think the suspicion of the of the journalist who tells the story, Ali, uh, is 
is what he's hearing really the case? Are the Sunnis and the Shia going to get back together and be able to to live together? And I, I think that that question is still not answered. I don't think anybody could say that it is. I mean, we haven't seen, so to speak, a, a civil war break out, uh, thank God. But, you know, this is this is why to kind of turn towards Iran for a second. Th- this is why what happens next with vis-a-vis the U.S. policy with Iran is, is so important. Because our, our engagement, our involvement, uh, our approach to Iranian policy directly impacts what happens in Iraq. And we have so much blood and treasure invested in Iraq since the, since the days of the invasion all the way through present that uh, we have to keep in mind that any conflict between the U.S. and Iran is going to take place in Iraq. And, and we right. risk squandering all of that um, that's been, that's been uh, built up since then. You know, and, and of course, the, the Iranians would love nothing more than a, than a civil war to strengthen their position uh, in Baghdad. Uh, and in fact, you know, there's the case could be made that um, that they welcomed they welcomed the rise of ISIS for a time being until it became a risk. It was in some sense their Frankenstein. Of course, they would tell us that we created it. Um, but if, if you really look at it, you know, it's uh, it was a useful tool for a period of time for the Iranian government uh, to, to kind of compartmentalize. Iraq into manageable uh, uh, sectors, I guess, that they could wield more influence in. Of course, that's the ultimate goal here is uh, for Iran is to get the U.S. out of out of not just Iraq, but also the region. And and that kind of that conflict is is the context of what we see in the last month. Yeah, Iran seems to be pretty good at um, taking advantage of chaos uh, throughout the Middle East. And, um, you know, obviously Soleimani was their, their point man for that and, uh, you know, for their foreign policy uh, up until he was killed. Um, but, you know, I, I would imagine that after he, since he's been killed, the leaders in Iran are now thinking, um, you know, if, if we uh, overtly attack the U.S. or even if we cause uh, – casualties and it can be traced back to us there may be some consequences um what are your thoughts on that that whole situation with Soleimani well I think that's uh I think that's true to an extent um I do think there's there's been an important development uh that's that's taken place you know I don't know when this is going to air but within within this week for us here in real time uh and that being the, the acknowledgement now by the U.S. government that uh there were a dozen or so U.S. troops that were actually hurt in the, right. in, the, uh, in the missile strike, right? So, you know, if, if we go back to the, the night of the strike, we, you know, we saw the missiles come in and everybody was kind of holding their breath to see, you know, was anybody killed? What was the destruction? And, and moreover, what was the what was the goal and the intent of the Iranians uh, by launching the strike? And then I think very quickly, uh, because the administration wanted us to believe this, and I think because potentially the Iranians did as well, that as conventional wisdom became, this was kind of a tit for tat, this was a retaliatory strike that wasn't really trying to hurt anybody, but just trying to send a message. And I think that fit a lot of people's uh, perspectives and agendas. And, and, and we kind of whistled and moved on and, and we're happy that there was no response from the Trump administration that would lead to anything escalating beyond where it already was. And it quickly seemed diffused. But if we, if we look back now in hindsight being 2020, and I think that the person in the administration that, that gave a hint of this early on was General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Uh, and he told us the day after that Iran was trying to kill people. 
and he, he was pretty clear about it, even though if it wasn't necessarily uh, the, the key talking points uh, that the administration was, was pushing in the days after. So all, all of which is to say, if we look back in, in hindsight and, and we see how close we actually did come to an American being killed, um, I, I think it's certainly uh, we could we could assume that the response of the United States would have been much different, uh, even if it had been just one soldier being killed. And, and then where, where we'd be right now would be, uh, would be anybody's guess. So with the killing of Soleimani, um, do you think that actually uh, affected their capability or is it more of a, a symbolic strike? Well, if you look at Soleimani as the foreign minister, the, his portfolio is kind of being, you know, director in chief of proxy conflicts and partnership building across the Shia Crescent. That's what I'd put on his business card. Uh, you know, this is a guy that was responsible for building the relationships with uh, partners in Yemen, in Syria, Lebanon, and even Afghanistan, not to mention Iraq. So those types of roles are, are, are very uh, heavily reliant on relationships. So I think that is a significant uh, degradation to their ability to kind of keep these different proxies in, in line and, and marching together in, in the right direction. But from an operational standpoint, it's, you know, anybody that was there will tell you that, you know, if you've got an operational uh, threat, something that's, that's, you know, a plot that's hours uh, away from emerging, you know, killing bin Laden the night before nine 11 wouldn't have prevented the attack. So right. it's, it's a little bit of misdirection to pretend like it would have like, the taking out Suleimani, you know, protect prevented some attack yet to be revealed in the following days. Uh, again, you can make a case that the guy is worth killing just based on his resume, or you can make a case uh, that the guy is worth killing uh, because it was in the interest of the United States and, and what we're trying to accomplish in the region, and based on what the guy was doing in terms of continuing to foster this, this violence uh, that spread across the region. But you know, I think it's important for the administration to be to be direct and, and uh, transparent with the facts and, and what's happening, because what you don't want is you don't want to get, get the country back to a place where they stop trusting, you know, the, the military leaders, uh, the leadership, um, uh, kind of like where we were at the end of Vietnam. So uh, two things. So for the audience who may not be familiar, uh, can you explain what the Shia Crescent is? And then also, uh, particularly with Iraqi special operations, uh, during the height of the Iraq war, um, they would often operate in uh, Sadr City alongside U.S. Special Operations Forces. Uh, and and the, the guy who was running the show in Sadr City was Muqtada al-Sadr. Whatever happened to him? Sure. I'll, I'll start with the Shia Crescent uh, question first. So uh, the Shia Crescent is, is basically, it's more than a foreign policy. It's almost an ideology uh, that the Iranian government has, has held on to really since the days of the revolution in, in 1979. And its its intent is essentially to draw a line of influence that extends from Lebanon on the Mediterranean down through Syria, through Iraq, uh, and into the Gulf. And it's it's really the fault line, if you will, between two, two brands of Islam, the, the Sunni and the Shia, which if we really want to oversimplify it, we can call it, you know, kind of a, a family quarrel that, that breaks apart in terms of who, who should be the leader uh, to follow uh, in the footsteps of uh, the Prophet Muhammad. 
that's way oversimplifying it. But essentially what you have is the Sunnis and, and kind of, uh, you know, their, uh, their political, I guess I would say, nexus is, is in Riyadh. And, and certainly the Saudis, the House of Saud, see themselves as the defender of Sunni Islam. Uh, and then you've got, obviously, the, the government in the ground, the Ayatollah, who sees himself uh, and his his regime as the defenders of the Shia, with the really the, the nexus uh, kind of being in, in Karbala, which, of course, is in Iraq. And what we have, of course, is, you know, the country of Iraq lane right smack in between. And this is what gets back to what I was saying with, you know, any conflict that, that we find ourselves in with Iran is ultimately going to be fought in Iraq. That That is the fault line. But the, the Shia Crescent is, is essentially the efforts of the Iranian government over the past 30 years to, to build an arc of influence. And it involves working with uh, local governments, and I don't mean just state, federal governments in, in, in countries like Yemen and Lebanon, but I mean getting all the way down into the Hezbollah level, I mean city council level politics, uh, to have a, a religion that has a, a political apparatus behind it, or you, or you could say a political apparatus that has a religion behind it, either way. And, and that's essentially what, uh, what Soleimani was focused on. From, from the Iranians' kind of perspective, you know, they, they would say that this type of, um, th- these type of efforts are, are, are based on their experience in the Iran-Iraq war, which of course cost a million lives. It was extremely bloody and, and uh, a seriously painful memory for the people of Iran. Um, in terms of the the, the, the blood uh, spilt on, on the battlefield between those two countries. And they don't ever want to see that again. And they, they think, of course, uh, you know, much like we do defensively in the sense that to have a buffer zone between them and a perceived enemy is, is necessary. So that's, a, that's a, in a nutshell, that's what it is. And how about uh, Mutara al-Sadr? Well, Mutara al-Sadr, you know, I think, is... Um, probably best uh, positioned or, or equipped to benefit from the death of Suleimani. Uh, he, you know, if, if we go back to September, October, what we saw in Iraq, uh, what we saw spring up were these protests uh, against the government of, of Baghdad. But what, what they were really about, uh, the protests were about the undue external Iranian influence in Iraqi society and government. Uh, in often cases, these were Shia Iraqis that were protesting in the streets, uh, again, feeling that the, the government in Iran uh, shouldn't be involved in, in some of the daily activities uh, that were happening in, in Baghdad. That's interesting. And that, that, yeah, and that comes in the form of you know everything from corruption to, to taxes to you know things that seem very political in nature and don't have this kind of fervent religious ideology behind it. Uh, so there was this kind of, you know, growing, uh, and of course this led to the prime minister ultimately resigning, kind of sets the stage for what happened in December and January here. So those protests, by the way, were also taking place in Lebanon as well as uh, in Iran. So the Iranian regime finds itself in the, in the fall, the late fall of 2019 in a very precarious position because they've got this growing dissent not only on their own streets, but in the streets of the countries that they see as satellites to them. Uh, and one of the people that w- was Shia, but not necessarily a part of the Iranian kind of appendage, is Muqtada al-Sadr. So what he's, of course, has advocated in theory is uh, much less Iran-focused or, or Iran-flavored uh, interpretation of Shia, but more of a, uh, an Iraqi-focused uh, interpretation of it. So he very well could uh, could benefit from uh, from the events of the past couple of weeks. 
of course he, he's not he's not no saint either um and, and his botter brigades were also responsible for the deaths of hundreds of american uh, soldiers and marines in iraq during the time that we were there right and and if i'm not mistaken he had uh backing from the iranian government uh, essentially from the quds force sure and of course there's overlap the quds force uh you know, essentially part of the IRGC, which again is under Soleimani's portfolio. But again, the the interest of Iran during the time that we were involved in day to day combat in Iraq was to make it a, a living nightmare for the U.S. involvement there, and certainly they did a very good job at that. It's fascinating because the Iranian government is kind of has a weird setup because you have the the democratically elected president and you have a, a democratically elected parliament, but then you have the supreme leader whose whose power and influence supersedes the president. And then Soleimani reports to the supreme leader, not to the president. So I'd done a podcast. Um, I, I released it today with a, a journalist who is, uh, he grew up between Iraq and Lebanon and he now lives in the U.S., but he's covered the Middle East for over 20 years. And he made the case that based on the the setup of the government in Iran, he made the case that technically Soleimani doesn't answer to any democratically elected official. Therefore, that means he's not a government official. Yeah, that's uh, I mean, that's, that's an interesting point. So there's no question Soleimani was was by all means the, the number two in command uh, in Iran reporting to the Ayatollah and had a personal relationship with him. So there's. There's no question as to his power, uh, to what was his power. Um, but yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize that. And, and again, with the, with the Ayatollah and the way the, the way things work in Iran is, is not necessarily how they work uh, in Baghdad or certainly not in Washington. So kind of um, going back to the film a little bit, uh, another thing that was highlighted, uh, another sort of aspect of what they had to deal with uh, aside from the direct combat with ISIS. Uh, and I thought this was very dangerous. I remember um, me and my wife were watching it, and I was telling her as they were showing this part, like, this is extremely dangerous. And this was uh, when they're taking in refugees and trying to root out potential ISIS fighters hidden among them. Uh, can you talk about some of that? It's It goes back to the question of friend or foe. And, and of course, uh, like in so many, you know, combat operations uh, and conflicts, it's uh, on the tactical and strategic level, it can be very difficult to determine who is friend and who is foe. Uh, and I think there's no better example given than what you just mentioned, uh, alluded to from the film, which is a scene uh, that we capture from the drone. This is maybe one of the best scenes from the drone. Uh, you've essentially got the, the west side of Mosul and the east side of Mosul, of course, separated by the Tigris River. Uh, and on one side is this kind of mass of, of, of humanity, um, these refugees, and, and most likely some elements of ISIS mixed in with them. Uh, and then on the other side, you've got the Iraqi security forces uh, that have set up essentially a, a checkpoint. Um, and they're, they're literally bringing these people over boatload, boatload by boatload uh, to kind of spot and assess them and identify who, who's a threat and who might be a threat and who they just don't know. So that includes you know, uh, going through the, the identifications that were, you know, essentially created and provided by the the, the Islamic uh, government, the, the government that Daesh had put in place, 
and, and trying to uh, trying to confirm and corroborate is is this your neighbor? Do you know who this person is? So what we see is this uh, this scene of, of women and, and children predominantly, but also fighting age males who are looked at uh, with a very uh, very much higher level of scrutiny, and they're they're brought over uh, boatload by boatload and, and screened and vetted for for the potential threat that they that they might bring. So I know one of the one of the difficulties that civilians faced in areas controlled by ISIS in Syria and in Iraq was. Uh, they were not allowed to leave and uh, people would try and leave and they would get killed, you know, shot by snipers or, or you know, killed by guys on the street. Um, so for these individuals that were highlighted in the film, um, are you aware of, you know, sort of what it took for them to get to that point where they're at the Tigris River getting picked up by Iraqi security forces? Yeah, I mean, essentially, the, this is an operation that, that uh, proceeded from several different cardinal directions. Um, so, you know, escaping from ISIS when it, you know, when Mosul, escaping from Mosul when it was ISIS-controlled territory um, was was probably akin to getting out of East Germany um, back during the days of the Cold War. So I, my understanding is that if you had, you know, certain permissions and authorities uh, from the Islamic government that you would be, you would be permitted to leave probably for, for merchant or trade reasons. Uh, but of course, by and large, most people weren't allowed to leave, uh, and you would ultimately have to escape. And there's, there's plenty of stories uh, that are told throughout the film of people trying to escape and the terrible, uh, consequences that befall them. And, um, and, and that was uh, unfortunately just a part of life under ISIS, uh, until ultimately the, the liberation of Mosul with, with West Mosul really being, the, the stronghold in, in the final uh, part of the city uh, to fall. So I'd like to talk about the um, the, the Iraqi journalist um, uh, Ali Mullah. Um, Ali Mullah, yeah. yeah. Can we talk about him a little bit? Um, sure. And maybe a little bit of his background and, and how you got involved with him? Absolutely. So uh, we had worked with Ali. So I had actually done uh, two seasons of a TV show leading up to this documentary. Uh, it was a TV show I produced for Al Hura. Uh, which is uh, essentially it's part of the Voice of American Network and, and broadcast in Arabic to all of the Middle East. Um, so the, the TV series was on ISIS defectors, and it was broken across across two different seasons uh, in, in, in such a way as to kind of mirror the, the, the phase of the conflict that, that we found ourselves in. So the, in the first season, uh, which was filmed in 2015, was really about the beginning of the end of ISIS, and what we did is we filmed 13 different uh, individuals, uh, former, well, essentially, ISIS defectors um, from Morocco. And we actually traveled to Morocco, traveled to Syria, traveled to Lebanon, and to Iraq. Uh, and interviewed 13 different individuals who had defected from ISIS. And of course, what we were trying to show is that they all had their reasons for joining ISIS, and they were all different reasons, and they all had their independent and very different reasons for leaving ISIS. And of course, by doing so, the, the goal is to, is to message the, the people that are that are watching the watching the TV show that hey, you may be you may find yourself in a, a similar situation. You may be sitting there in Raqqa, you know, wondering why you joined this group and how to get out. But here's an example of a guy, and we also had females, by the way, too, and they were young and old, came from all different walks of life. Um, but the idea was, you know, to, to show people that there was a way out of this mess, even for whatever reason they had joined. Uh, and for whatever reason they wanted to get out, it, it was important, the messaging component of this of this TV series, 
was the ultimately under underline that um, uh, that there was a way out, a way back. And then the second season, what we did is we looked at people that had returned to their communities, uh, again, looking at the same four countries and filmed interviews with them that showed them returning to life. So you find the, the woman that was in charge of the Sharia dress code. Now she's a dressmaker or the, the guy that makes the car bombs that look like they're out of Mad Max. You know, now he runs a, a garage, a, a mechanic shop. So think things like that. And again, with the goal, the goal of being getting these people back into society so that they don't return to the battlefield uh, at any time uh, or in any place or shape or form for any reason. And ultimately, again, I think it was pretty successful. It was 13 episodes, so they're about a half hour each. So Ali Mullah was the narrator for about two thirds of the interviews that we did. Um, so we worked with him for, for quite a long time, and he's got a, he's got a great stage presence in terms of being able to to talk to somebody, you know, um, from any walk of from any walk of life, and really be able to get at the heart of what makes their story interesting to the audience. And is he from Baghdad? He is a Shia, and I believe, yes, he is from Baghdad. Okay. And is he still living in Iraq and working as a journalist? He is, albeit uh, in, a, in a bit of a different, um, I, I guess you'd say, uh, posture. And I, I say that because this, the film is actually, it, it's essentially banned in some parts of Iraq. So the, mm. uh, the Iranian-backed uh, factions, the PMF, the, uh, that, we, that we feature in the film, uh, they weren't thrilled that we essentially highlighted the Iranian influence uh, that was in, involved in um, uh, in the battle against ISIS. So, of course, we know it exists, uh, and we know that they have uh, acknowledged that. But nevertheless, they, they felt it crossed the line and, and, and could potentially be used against them. I mean, we saw the we saw the protests uh, in the fall of Iraqis essentially saying enough is enough with the influence of, of Tehran uh, and their government in our in our politics, but. Uh, they, they felt that the, the film's kind of editorial line didn't paint them in a, in a positive light. So, of course, they don't they're not open to discussions. They just uh, they, they just make a proclamation and, and it becomes very difficult to see this film if you're if you're in Iraq. That's very interesting. Um, you know, obviously, I, I was aware that Iran played a part in countering ISIS. Um, I, I think even in the wake of um, Soleimani's killing, uh, there's kind of been, I mean, some of this is partisan, uh, some of this, uh, well, all of it is politics, but there's been some pushback against the administration for killing him and, and whatnot. And even to the point where some media outlets, you know, they've done an hour special on the situation and, and try to um, paint a picture of who Soleimani was and and um, almost to the point where they're painting him as like a, a patriotic Iranian that people in Iran love or whatever. And um, one of the things they talk about was, oh, he was instrumental in the fight against ISIS. Um, so this is a thing that's at least known to some people who pay attention to these things in the West. But uh, so the main reason that they didn't like that their Iranian influence was highlighted was just because of the backlash from the Iraqi people. Well, look, uh, you're, you're, you're onto something there. So, look, first and foremost, a lot of a lot of Americans don't understand uh, that the role that the Shia Iranian backed militias played in the defeat of ISIS. And it is it, it is it's there. It's it's in the film. It, it's undeniable. Um, there's no question about it. But what people, you know, especially in the West, I, I think we get in, into this kind of, well, it's either red or it's blue. It's either left or it's right. 
and it's kind of a bipolar look at the world. And, you know, the Middle East is a, is a, maybe one of the few places in the world where the, the enemy of my enemy isn't my friend. And I think that's what you see here is that you have, you have, you know, there's a, there's a saying that there are no permanent interests or there are no permanent allies, but there are only permanent interests. Well, in the Middle East, I would say there's no permanent allies and there's no permanent interests. So the interest, of course, of the, the Iranian government is, is I'm not going to say to work with, but to work in parallel, let's say, to U.S.-backed forces killing ISIS. Um, but that cooperation or, or willing to, you know, to at least uh, attack the same objective, it ends with the defeat of ISIS. And, and then... And then we're back to, okay, you're my enemy again. So that's, I mean, I think that's where we are in the curve of history of the region and in the relationship between the groups that were involved in that fight. Suleimani was involved with the PMFs. He, he you know, certainly the guy that was in the car that got blown up next to him, Abu Mohandas, was was the leader of those groups. Um, there's, uh, yeah, so they, look, they they played a they played an undeniable role um, in in. In the defeat of ISIS, but uh, it doesn't make them good guys just because they ended up on the same the same side of uh, uh, opposing a, a barbaric ideology. And in fact, I would also say that if you if you go back to kind of the way in which you know military operations unfolded during that period of time when when they were taking Mosul, there were a lot of war crimes committed um, against suspected ISIS right. uh, on behalf of these PMF. We've got that in the very end of the film. We show just a real just kind of just. Uh, glancing uh, look at some, you know, essentially uh, civilian social media that shows a very arbitrary decision of who's ISIS and who's not. And God forbid you're from the wrong tribe or have a beef with this guy down the road, because if you're if you're labeled ISIS, then you, you're summarily executed on the battlefield by these Iranian PMFs. Um, so that's that's not the way that's not the way that uh, we hope the U.S. forces uh, did business. But that is. In many cases, there are lots of stories about the atrocities committed uh, by the Iranian-backed militias in, in their fight against ISIS, and it, it ultimately gets that back to if if we're the supposed if if these guys are the supposed good guys, but they're committing atrocities against the bad guys, does that make them good guys or bad guys? Right, and I think on social media. So one of the things that was uh, unique about this fight against ISIS in Iraq and in Syria is there were a number of people close to the fighting, either civilians or people involved in the fighting themselves, um, Westerners who had gone there to fight against ISIS, um, and people out there with cell phones. And, you know, they have Instagram accounts, they have Twitter accounts, and they're posting videos and pictures in real time. And on social media, you know, like I remember this one account, I forget what account it was. Um, they they might have been Sunni. I, I don't really remember, but I remember they had captured this ISIS guy. And on his Instagram story, he put, you know, you can put up like a poll or something, uh, something like that. Right. Um, and he he wrote something like. We just caught this ISIS dirtbag. Should we execute this piece of shit? Yes or no? You know, I, something like I, that. I have a feeling that's where we were going with it. I think we may have talked to that guy too. I mean, we had, you know, we had access to people that just, quite frankly, were you know saying, "Hey, we got a guy. Do you want to? You want to film us killing him? You know, like, no, I don't know. We don't. We don't want footage of that. No, no, no. They <laughs> want to be recording in war crimes. So, uh, right. but yeah, that's that's the way the neighborhood over there, and um, yeah. Yeah, it's just just craziness. Um, 
So sort of moving away from the film a little bit, um, I would like if, if we can talk a little bit about your background. Um, so you were you were doing counterterrorism work for nine years, you said? Yeah, so I had uh, I finished grad school in uh, 2003, joined the agency that summer and uh, ended up in special activities division where probably a lot of folks who've had on this podcast have have worked with people from there or maybe worked in that in that division. It's kind of the uh, it's kind of the direct lineage back to the, the days of, of OSS. Now, I didn't have a military background going in. Uh, I had a, a really a political communication background. So that's that was my focus there and really getting into the ideology and the counter radicalization. How do you understand these people and, and work with groups that can oppose them? Uh, but nevertheless, got, got to work side by side with, you know, just amazing operators uh, that were either detailed there or uh, came came to work there. Uh, spent time in Iraq and Afghanistan, traveled around other parts of the world and ultimately left, uh, you know, after after they got bin Laden, I decided uh, about 2012 timeframes, decided to go out and start my own company. So I did that and then ultimately got into, into really the media stuff in, in 2014-15 with the kicking off this TV series that we just talked about on ISIS defectors. So while you were at the agency, uh, had you already had some sort of interest in doing like media type of stuff and then decided when you got out, this is what I'm going to do? Or did that just kind of happen as you got yeah. out or after? No, I, I did. And actually was a journalism major undergrad. So bringing that to the agency and, and then kind of developing some fun new skill sets there and, and kind of bringing them to uh, to the real world after yeah, it was pretty fascinating. Um, I I uh, sort of saw you on Twitter, and I look, and it says you know producer of the film, and and then former uh, former CIA. I'm like, oh shit, I had no idea. Um, and and then I guess especially because the the entire film was in Arabic, so it 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 kind of lends to like a this was a a local production kind of thing. Um, so are, are you guys working on any new projects as far as media and stuff like that? Yeah, we are. Um, and, and definitely encourage your listeners to follow my, uh, my Twitter handle to stay up to date on that, which is uh, at Dan P. Gabriel. Um, so, yeah, what we're looking at is, is actually tied to our conversation here and kind of the bigger picture of the context of what is what the hell is going on uh, in the Middle East. Uh, and what are the next 10, 20, 50 years going to look like in that part of the world? Does it drag the U.S. in? Does it drag other great powers in? Uh, and the, the working title of the film is Proxy. And it's really it's really about this this battle that we've touched upon uh, between Sunni and Shia, uh, but really between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Right. Because there's a political context. To it. Oftentimes, maybe all times, when you hear of these you know, religious wars, there's there's always politics between it. You know, whether it's the, the Catholics and the Christians or, you know, Sunni and Shia, there's it's uh, there's there's it's about power ultimately and and i think that's a lot of what makes up the conflict that we see playing out between saudi arabia and iran obviously we've we've thrown down and uh you know we have since the, the really the 80s on the side of the sunnis uh, that's why we backed saddam that's why we backed uh saudi arabia and provide them weapons um to, to kill people in yemen and so this this has uh, gone on and on really since since the 80s uh, we, we, as a nation, have uh, our national security apparatus has, has decided that the the Ayatollah's version of, of Islam and, and the threat posed by Iran are greater than other possible threats in the region uh, posed by other governments. And I think that that kind of thinking held until 
Osama bin Laden came along, of course, him being a Saudi, uh, initially paid for not only by the Saudis, but also by the U.S. to, to, to fight essentially a Sunni uh, religious war in Afghanistan. I think then we we kind of turned our focus 25 degrees and we started to look at the threat posed by uh, Sunni uh, Salafism or Wahhabism. But I, I think those days have probably passed us with the with the defeat of ISIS. And I, I do think that we're going to be looking again at kind of this conflict between Sunni and Shia with the fault line being Iraq and, and other parts of that Shia crescent. Also, uh, what's happening in Syria and what's happening in Yemen. So these are the places that we want to go and, and stories we want to capture from from the ground up and, and kind of make sense of it all. Yeah, I think um, obviously when you know, regardless of what political party has the White House, the other party probably criticizes moves by the administration that they would support if it was their party holding the White House. Um, so you have the relationship the U.S. has with Saudi Arabia. Obviously, when we're talking about Sunni extremism, they export that. Uh, they fund it. Um and and Wahhabism and and it's it's all over the world. Uh, at, right, at least like, at least a yeah. part of you know a part of the royal family is is a part of that. Um, you know I, I'm I'm not sure how united they are and 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 some of those uh, ideological um, facets. But you know what people critic like when um when they killed that journalist um, Khashoggi, right? Yeah. So there was a lot of criticism in the U.S by the media and, and Democrats and liberals. And then people start to question, you know, why are we allies with the Saudis? Um, look at the way they, they treat people, look at the things that they do, look what they're doing in Yemen. Um, and while it is fair criticism, and I think we should always question everything, regardless of who, who holds the White House, uh, I never hear anyone talk about the fact that what's happening in Yemen is essentially a a war between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and they never speak about Iran's influence on that entire situation. Well, that's exactly what it is. Uh, that's why we provided weapons uh, and, and even uh, munitions for, for use by the Saudi Air Force to, to kill a lot of people in Yemen, uh, because it is seen as, as exactly what you just described. And, and that's what we want to get into in proxy. And I, I think it's going to be just a mind-blowing story when you, when you look deep into it, because Unfortunately, it is it is the Republicans or Democrats, conservative or liberal, and it's you know, you just turn the TV on, you see the guy's bio, and whether he's got an R or a D next to his name, and you know what he's going to say, uh, you know. So, I try to avoid talking to people like that, and you know, the, the, your your average swamp creature up here in D.C. is you know people that have spent their lives in, in government and think tanks and policy and academia and the military and intel world. Uh, most of them don't look at it like that. Um, it's what, what you see on TV when you're when you're watching that. Uh, somebody put something into the box to, to be pro-Trump or anti-Trump is it's uh, it's packaged for kind of a lesser educated, uh, wider swath of American society, and, and they basically just plant the flag so that you can identify pro or against the argument. But they don't really get. It. I mean, they're not having this. You know, we've been talking for a half hour now. They're not having anything near the, the depth of conversation that we're having. No, no. And, and any time that I speak to somebody who is a subject matter expert, uh, particularly on issues of terrorism, counterterrorism, 
you know, what's going on in the world as far as the U.S. foreign policy and whatnot. Um, and, and I think podcasts, one of the things that are amazing about podcasts, is it allows you to have these long form discussions, whereas on the um, the major networks, the majority of it is, you know, 10 minutes of four different people trying to get <laughs> sound barbs and, you know. Right. You're exactly right, John. Absolutely. It's uh, all too common. Yeah. So, so uh, you know, it was great having you on here. Uh, very informal. Like I said, the, the film Mozo is fantastic. Um, I encourage all of my, my audience and listeners, uh, friends and supporters to watch it. Uh, it's available pretty much everywhere. Um, I watched it on Amazon Prime. It is in Arabic, so if you're watching it on Amazon <laughs> Prime, you have to turn the subtitles on. Um, but yeah, otherwise, like I said, it's fantastic. Um, uh, you know, again, I want to thank you for coming on here and thank you for your service as well. I appreciate John. Thank you. Uh, you're doing a great service uh, through this podcast, and I hope more people tune in. I certainly will be listening to future episodes and. Uh, I'm going to shoot you an email with a couple names that you should absolutely have on people that um, can have in-depth discussions on on topics that you certainly cover. Uh, everything from you know Marines and veterans issues, people like Scott Husing to uh, law enforcement, national law enforcement, immigration, people like Jason Piccolo. So, kudos to you and, and thanks for having me. I appreciate the time.
Thank mm-hmm. you.